Welcome to the very first house lecture of the ECPR. The house lecture, that's a series of lectures, is a new event with which we'd like to close 2020. As you all know, the ECPR has celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2020. And for that reason, and a few others on which I will now not dwell because they are not too pleasant, the year 2020 is one that will never be forgotten, at least not by the ECPR. This new lecture series is actually something that was made possible, at least its format, as a result of the peculiar times that we have gone through and are still going through. The house lectures are indeed an online event from our house, that's Harbour House in Colchester, to your house, which is actually also your house. Um, this um, house lecture today is the first one, um, but we aim at offering a house lecture on a regular basis. For this first house lecture, we did not have to deliberate on who would be the best person to deliver the lecture. As part of our 50th anniversary celebrations, we have in 2020 awarded the ECPR Lifetime Achievement Award to David Miller. And we thought that a good way to honor him and to allow us to listen to him would be letting him give the first inaugural house lecture. Our next house lecture will be on February the 2nd and will be delivered by Veronica Angel. Veronica has received recently the first ECPR Rising Star Award and will speak on the declining standards of democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. Today's speaker, David Miller, is Professor of Political Theory at the University of Oxford and Senior Research Fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford. He has been a Fellow of the British Academy since 2002. David Miller's long-standing interest has been the concept of justice, the central and crucial, but also very contested concept of democratic politics. His work has not only focused on the principles that should underlie just policies of redistribution, but also on the ways in which such policies can be implemented and on what is needed for legitimizing them. This has been the basis of, the, of his defense of a liberal version of nationality in which the nation and the nation state can provide for the necessary solidarity. With his presentation of today, entitled The Resurgence of Nationalism, we are, I believe, at the heart of his work. Before giving him the floor, I'd like to share some practical guidelines with you. First, David will deliver his lecture, and after that, we'll have plenty of time for questions from the audience, from you. You cannot raise your hands, but you can ask questions by using the Q&A function that you find at the bottom of your screen. You can start formulating questions as soon as we start and until the end, and everybody should be able to see all the questions. For now, without further ado, David Miller on the resurgence of nationalism. David, floor is yours. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for inviting me to give this uh, first house lecture. So I thought it would be good to take as a topic for the talk something that might be of interest other than to theorists like me. And so I chose as my question how best to understand what in many people's eyes 
has been a sharp rise in nationalism across many liberal democracies. Whether there really has been such a rise is a question I'll be asking. And I want to challenge a view that I think is fairly widespread among both political commentators and academic political scientists, namely that what we've been witnessing is best described as a nationalist backlash against liberal democratic values. Now you'll either be disappointed or relieved to hear that I won't be presenting any data of my own, so no incomprehensible spreadsheets to look at, though I will on occasion refer to evidence that other people have gathered. My main question is how best to understand what's been going on, though towards the end of the talk I'll move into more normative gear and raise the question whether we shouldn't be more sympathetic to nationalism than political scientists and theorists generally are. As uh, Rogers Brubaker put it a few years back, and I quote, for many scholars in the social sciences and humanities, nation is a suspect category. Few American scholars wave flags, and many of us are suspicious of those who do, and often with good reason, since flag waving has been associated with intolerance, xenophobia, and militarism, exaggerated national pride, and aggressive foreign policy. And I think that remark would also hold for most non-American scholars and certainly for most Europeans. So to begin, it's undeniable that in recent years, we've been seeing something that could be called a resurgence of nationalism. The evidence for this is provided by the increasing proportion of voters who are willing to support far-right parties standing on nationalist platforms, parties like the Alternative for Deutschland and the Sweden Democrats, many others, and also uh, the shift towards a more openly nationalistic stance on the part of some conservative parties. Alarm bells are being sounded at the threat this poses to liberal values, even to democracy itself. Domestically, it materializes in the form of a willingness on the part of nationalist politicians to override both individual liberties, such as freedom of the press, and established constitutional practices such as judicial independence, all in the name of national interest. Internationally, it takes the form of a single-minded pursuit of national priorities at the expense of international treaties and alliances like NATO and the European Union. And then above all, it takes the form of indifference towards the human rights of those outside the national community, whether they're the migrants and the refugees or the global poor. So protecting national borders, the living standards of those inside them becomes the number one priority, even if that means leaving non-citizens drowning in the Mediterranean or perishing from heat exposure crossing the Sonoran Desert. But beyond, I think, these more immediate political threats that resurgent nationalism is said to pose to liberal ideals, at a deeper level, it also challenges a popular enlightenment narrative about liberal democracies, according to which their citizens have been moving steadily for some time in the direction of a worldview I'm going to call egalitarian liberalism. Now, this worldview includes a commitment to long established liberal values like democracy and the rule of law, but it goes beyond them to celebrate, on the one hand, individuality, in other words, each person's freedom to create their own identity unhampered by social norms and traditional expectations and on the other 
social equality, the society in which every member is recognized as equally valuable and respected for what they are, no matter how they choose to identify and present themselves. So the Enlightenment narrative holds that since the mid 20th century, liberal democracies have in sequence crossed a threshold beyond which their citizens feel sufficiently materially secure that they no longer need to hold on to group oriented beliefs and loyalties that might have served them well in the past. They're expected to move steadily over time towards egalitarian liberalism on the way discarding prejudices such as racism, sexism, homophobia, homophobia and so on. And you can find versions of this narrative in works like Inglehart's Culture Shift in Advanced Industrial Society, uh, Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man, and Christian Welsell's Freedom Rising, Human Empowerment and the Quest for Emancipation. Now, as part of this narrative, nationalism is supposed progressively to fade away. It's seen as inconsistent with egalitarian liberalism for two main reasons. One is the way in which it tries artificially to homogenize the citizen body. It assumes that all of society's members either do already or should conform to the national image, what it means to be a good American or a good German. And so it's the enemy of diversity. And because in reality, not everybody does conform, it's also the enemy of equality. A marginal American or a marginal German who might, for example, be an immigrant is not shown equal respect. And then second, looking outwards, nationalism privileges fellow nationals over outsiders and justifies policies thereby that might be deeply harmful to those outside, whereas egalitarian liberalism, in contrast, is implicitly cosmopolitan. It demands every human being being shown equal respect. And so nationalism is an obstacle to progress. And if it's not going to disappear completely, it's acceptable in only in a mild cultural form. So for example, let me just cite uh, Fukuyama on this. Fukuyama says, if nationalism is to fade away as a political force, it must be made tolerant like religion before it. National groups can retain their separate languages and senses of identity, but that identity would be expressed primarily in the realm of culture rather than politics. The French can continue to savor their wines and the German their sausages, but this will all be done within the sphere of private life alone. Such an evolution has been taking place in the most advanced liberal democracies of Europe over the past couple of generations. So for people who accept some version of this narrative, the resurgence of nationalism, that's what we're seeing, comes as something of a shock and it needs explaining. And a popular explanation takes the form of what I'm calling backlash theory. So contemporary nationalism on this view is a reactive phenomenon the people who vote for nationalist politicians are reacting against something and expressing their reaction through a crude assertion of the national identity, which of course the politicians in question are only too happy to, cap to capitalize on. In other words, resurgent nationalism is not to be taken at face value, 
it needs to be explained in some other way, as for example, a response to economic deprivation or to the disruption caused by immigration or in some other similar way. So let me expand a little more on what I mean by backlash theory. As an explanation for nationalism, it's not new. More than a generation back, the political philosopher Isaiah Berlin used the metaphor of the bent twig, which he claimed to have found in Schiller, to explain the form taken by German nationalism in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, as well as by later European and anti-colonial nationalisms. So the idea of the bent twig is the idea of something that's been distorted by an outside force, but is then released and whips back against the face of the person who's touched it. So nationalism, according to Berlin, is a, is a response to psychic wounds inflicted on peoples by those from whom they seek recognition. He says it's, a, and I quote, it's a response to a patronizing or disparaging attitude towards the traditional values of a society, the result of wounded pride and a sense of humiliation in its most socially conscious members, which in due course produced anger and self-assertion. So you'll see similarities between this version of backlash theory and recent explanations of resurgent nationalisms, which see it as a arising among people who feel their interests are being disregarded and their values disrespected. But I think there's one important difference, namely that today anger and resentment are mainly directed at people inside the political community, at elite members, politicians, bureaucrats, bankers, and so forth. Whereas for Berlin, bent twig nationalism was a phenomenon of bourgeois German intellectuals who resented being made to feel provincial especially by the culturally dominant French. So look, for example, at uh, Norris and Inglehart's 2019 book, Cultural Backlash, which tries to explain the rise of authoritarian populism, populism by deploying a version of backlash theory. So assuming what I'm calling an enlightenment narrative, they argue that generational change in the direction of egalitarian liberalism leaves behind a residue of older socially conservative voters who at a certain point come to feel that they belong to an isolated and disparaged minority. They're strangers in their own land, as the phrase often has it. So these people believe that their values are no longer respected by the cosmopolitan elites who hold the reins of power in their society. And they respond by aligning themselves with strong leaders who promise to defend the national interest against the economic and cultural threats posed by outsiders, especially immigrants. Now, the question I want to ask is, if indeed we're experiencing a resurgence of nationalism, is backlash theory the best way to explain it? And I'm going to suggest it's not. And I think it may be helpful even to, for a moment to return to Isaiah Berlin who, although he saw bent twig nationalism as an aberration, one that could appear at any time, he saw it as a distorted version of something to which he attached positive value, namely human beings need to belong to a cultural community in which they could feel at home and feel secure. So he says at one point, nationalism, and I quote again, is an inflamed condition 
of national consciousness, which can be, and on occasion has been, tolerant and peaceful. And he says, national consciousness is surely rooted in a sharp sense of the differences between one human society and another, the uniqueness of particular traditions, languages, customs, of occupation over a long period of a particular piece of soil on which intense collective feeling is concentrated. So although he tends to reserve the word nationalism for the inflamed condition of national consciousness, he's always clear there's nothing regrettable about national identity itself or about the accompanying wish not to be ruled or dominated by outsiders. And I think in that respect, his version of that backlash theory is more perceptive than these recent versions, which seem to see all assertions of national identity as backward looking and anachronistic. So what I want to suggest is that in an important sense, a certain kind of nationalism is simply the normal political condition of modern liberal democracies. And here I'm echoing a view expressed a while back by uh, Michael Billig in his book, Banal Nationalism, where he contrasted the cool, matter of course, nationalism of everyday life of modern societies with the hot nationalism that appears where normal routines are disrupted and intense political emotions are released, for example, in the course of ethnically driven civil wars. I think this cool nationalism can be summed up in a few very simple propositions. First, people take it for granted that they belong to separate nations and that the cultural and other differences that exist between these nations are real, not imaginary, that Americans, Germans, Japanese taken collectively really are different from each other. Second, they expect their political leaders to pay primary attention to the interests and aspirations of fellow nationals shouldn't be indifferent or hostile towards outsiders, but their main responsibility is towards compatriots. And third, nations should be to a large degree self-determining. They should decide for themselves how they want to organize their collective life, what goals to pursue. That doesn't mean they shouldn't participate in international institutions, but it does exclude cases in which one country can effectively dominate or dictate policy to another. Now, what evidence do I have that ordinary citizens accept this commonplace version of nationalism? And indeed, there's no sign they're moving away from it. So in our recent uh, edited book on liberal nationalism, Gina Gustafsson and I surveyed some evidence about national attachments collected by the ISSP program in the form of answers to the question, how close do you feel to your country? What we found was that over the period 1995 to 2013, last time this survey was done, there were small upward and downward movements in various places. But overall, what we saw was a actually a small rise overall from 88% of respondents who said that they felt either close or very close to their country. We also looked at how this compared with closeness ratings for city, region and continent. And although the ratings for city and region were also quite high, nations came top in every case except Spain, where city came slightly ahead. 
So in other words, feeling close to your country, which we take to be equivalent to identifying positively, if not uncritically, with a nation, is indeed the normal taken for granted state of affairs for most people in contemporary liberal democracies. Now against this, you might say, are the increasing number of people willing to declare that they see themselves as citizens of the world. That's only a, a fairly small minority among European citizens, though Spain again is something of an exception here, though you do find higher levels in other places. But I wonder what those people who adopt the label actually mean when they say they're global citizens. It's not clear. Obviously, they don't mean that they take part in global elections. Might just mean that they take an interest in world affairs, that they're keen to travel and experience what life is like in different places. It might mean that they try to behave responsibly in their daily lives, buying fair trade products, trying to cut down on their CO2 footprints and so on. What I think is interesting is that there is no trade-off between having a national identity and having a cosmopolitan identity of this kind. So in a World Value Survey questionnaire, those who strongly agreed with the statement, I see myself as a world citizen, were also more likely to strongly affirm their sense of belonging to their nation. Indeed, and I think it's perhaps surprising, they're actually slightly more likely than people who disavowed world citizenship to say they were prepared to fight for their country if it was necessary, which many take to be the ultimate test of national loyalty. Well, turning now to national self-determination, what evidence do we have that people care about it? Well, perhaps for obvious reasons, the question's rarely put in that blunt form. People aren't asked, does it matter to you that your society is self-governing? One question that has been put again in the ISSP survey on national identity is whether the government should comply with the decisions of international organizations if it disagrees with them. Now, across European democracies, there's a fairly even division of opinion on that question for and against. It does though strike me as a rather vague question because it doesn't specify which international organizations or which topics. Perhaps more revealing is the question wh uh, whether people think that international organizations are taking too much power away from government. Now here, more people agree with that than disagree virtually everywhere, though there are quite big differences in the balance of opinion. So at the top end, the split between those agreeing that too much power is going to international organizations and those disagreeing is 73 to 10 in Portugal, 71 to 12 in Spain, 64 to 11 in the Czech Republic, and 59 to 10 in Great Britain. And in each case, there's a large chunk in the middle, neither agreeing or disagreeing. So clearly people do then value national self-determination if the alternative is power passing upward to international organizations, though this is not unqualified because around half of them also think that where such organizations do exist, then governments ought to respect their decisions. 
Now, what I'm calling this cool form of nationalism is also evident in the speeches and behavior of politicians who would describe themselves as being liberals and from that perspective, attack nationalism in its authoritarian form. So my favorite uh, specimen here is President Macron, who on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the armistice ending World War I, gave a long speech emphasizing the suffering endured by the French specifically and the historical sacrifices made in the name of freedom. On the occasion, he wore a trickler in his lapel, ended the speech, vive la France. So in no sense is it a cosmopolitan speech, but in the middle, he introduced a distinction that led many commentators to applaud this speech as an attack on nationalism. So let me just read you the, the relevant passage and I'm afraid I'm not gonna to try to imitate a French accent. This is Macron. Let's remember, let's take none of, take away none of the purity, the idealism, the higher principles that existed in the patriotism of our elders. In those dark hours, that vision of France as a generous nation, of France as a project, of France promoting universal values, was the exact opposite of the egotism of a people who look after only their interests, because patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of it in saying our interests first and who cares about the rest? You wipe out what's most valuable about a nation, what brings it alive, what leads its greatness and what is most important, its moral values. That's Macron. And in fact, he goes on to offer a version of uh, backlash theory when he cites resentment as the cause of conflicts. So he, he talks about the renewed hostilities in the interwar period uh, in terms of humiliation, the spirit of revenge and the economic and moral crisis fueling the rise of nationalism and totalitarianism. So here we have a picture. Nationalism is understood as national egotism, the unconstrained promotion of national interests at the expense of other people. Whereas patriotism is moralized to include not only political self-determination, but also the promotion of universal values. So here, nations don't disappear, um, ending the speech, vive la France, but also vive les nations libres du monde. The normal condition Macron applies of, of, of France as well as other countries is, is patriotism. But clearly, the patriotism that Macron's phrasing here is what I'm calling a, a cool form of nationalism. It celebrates Frenchness and the special Republican values that France embodies. And it places a special responsibility on French political leaders to defend those values. In his day-to-day -day activity as president, Macron can't avoid breaching the principle he's just laid down by acting on the basis of national interest rather than impersonal universal values. So if he decides, for example, to subsidize the French aircraft industry to protect French jobs at the expense of jobs elsewhere, or to close the border with Italy to prevent too many migrants arriving on French territory, he's acting on a way, in the way that in his speech, he's just condemned as nationalism. 
So I'm arguing that rather than seeing nationalism and, and liberal democracies as an aberration from the direction in which history is supposed to be moving and therefore in need of special explanation by reference to backlash theory, we should see it as the normal state of affairs as evidenced both by what we can learn about the national identities of ordinary citizens and the worldviews of liberal political leaders like Macron. And I just want to add one further piece of evidence, this time provided by the relatively new sub-state nationalisms found in regions like Scotland and Catalonia. It's clear that the rise of nationalism in these places cannot be explained by reference to the backlash model. In fact, it's revealing that neither Scotland nor Catalonia gets a single mention in Norris and Inglehart's book. Now, probably the authors would say this is because the nationalist parties in these countries don't fit the stereotype of author authoritarian populism that is the focus of their analysis. And this is certainly the case, but what it reveals is the error of conflating nationalism in general with its particular authoritarian populist incarnations. The national, nationalist parties in these countries are liberal and democratic in character. Indeed, in the case of the Scottish National Party and most of the nationalist parties in Catalonia, their claim is to be more progressive than the majority in the state from which they're trying to secede. They champion social justice, lifestyle pluralism, and a welcoming embrace for immigrants. So they're a standing challenge to the Enlightenment narrative, which holds that as these liberal values strengthen their hold, nationalism must wither away, or at least become non-political. And the very fact that sub-state nationalism has flourished in a number of established liberal democracies suggests on the contrary that as societies become more diverse in terms of individual lifestyles, the need to re rediscover a collective identity that can unite, can unite people also becomes more pressing. People want to feel that together they're able to control the direction in which their society is moving which means in practice having political leaders who they, they can identify with and feel that they share their values. Now, a response that might be made here is that these new nationalisms are purely civic in nature, and in that sense, not really cases of nationalism at all. And the assumption is that genuine nationalism must have a blood and soil character, which these nationalisms clearly lack. And it's true that as both Scottish and Catalan nationalism have evolved, less emphasis has been placed on the culturally distinct character of a nation and more on instrumental economic and democratic arguments for independence. But I think the once popular idea that nationalisms can be divided between those that are predominantly ethnic and those that are predominantly civic has come under sustained critical scrutiny, probably we should abandon it as a tool of classification. Now, I think there are two main problems. The first is that if um, ethnic nationalism portrays the nation as an extended kin, kin group, 
entry to which is involuntary and determined by ancestry, while civic nationalism portrays it as a, just as a political community held together by a common set of political values and therefore open to anybody who wants to join, it's not clear where the key components of national identity like language and religion belong. Are they ethnic or are they civic? On the one hand, these features can often serve as markers of ethnic divisions. It's primarily language, for example, that divides Flemings from Walloons in Belgium. On the other hand, unlike race, cultural features are not involuntary and are not impenetrable barriers to entry. Newcomers can choose to learn the national language, perhaps even in principle, adopt the national religion if there is one. So if culture is assimilated to ethnicity and contrasted with political features like respecting the country's laws and constitutions, then that way of interpreting this ethnic civic divide no longer corresponds to the division between aspects of identity that can be voluntarily acquired and those that cannot. And so in fact, many scholars now treat cultural nationalism as a third alternative. But the second problem is that however we decide to draw the line between ethnic and civic, when you try to classify people as having either ethnic or civic national identities by asking them how important various features are for belonging to their nation, being born in the country, speaking the language and so on and so forth, they don't fall neatly on either side of the divide. On the contrary, those who endorse the ethnic items on the list are also likely to endorse the civic items and the only differences you can extract have to do with how relatively important various items are thought to be. And the same applies when researchers aggregate across individuals in an attempt to locate different countries on a civic ethnic spectrum. So there are certainly differences that emerge when people are asked how important certain specific features of national identity are in their particular case, but they don't add up to a clear contrast between countries in which involuntary characteristics like ancestry and place of birth determine who counts as a member and countries where voluntary speak features like respecting the laws, speaking the language and so on are what count. So there's no simple spectrum from ethnic to civic on which countries can be placed. And if you try to put nations into sort of two-dimensional space by plotting the weight that their citizens attach to ascribed characteristics along one axis and acquired characteristics along the other, countries just scatter themselves across it in a largely random manner. So in other words, there, is no, there aren't just civic nations and ethnic nations, only just countries displaying slightly different combinations of both sets of ingredients. So uh, to take stock at this point, I've been challenging what I call the backlash view of resurgent nationalism, which sets it against what's supposed to be the normal path of development in liberal democracies, whereby, liberal, whereby national identities fade over time as people become more strongly attached to liberal values. And I challenge this picture in three ways. First, by pointing to the 
remarkably high and stable level of ident national identification and national commitment among liberal publics. Second, by pointing out that political leaders like Macron, who claim to be opposing nationalism in the name of patriotism, are really just defending one form of nationalism, liberal or republican version, at the expense of another. And third, by arguing that the appearance of new forms of nationalism within liberal democracies cannot be set aside on the grounds that the identities being promoted are purely civic in nature and therefore not really nationalist at all. So one way of summing this up is that people who promote the backlash view are looking at other people's nationalisms, disliking what they see, but failing to notice the cooler form of nationalism that's underpinning the liberal in, liberal and democratic institutions that they're trying to defend. So does this mean there's been no resurgence of nationalism at all and no backlash? Well, I think that would be an implausible claim. We have seen clearly illiberal authoritarian forms of nationalism taking hold in places where it had been assumed that liberal values had become firmly established in Eastern Europe and in the US, most obviously. Populist leaders were appealing to national interest, national culture as grounds for attempting to quell internal opposition and to pursue highly restrictive, discriminatory immigration policies. And they can persuade large numbers of voters that these policies are justified. But should we understand this in terms of backlash theory. So I think most analysts agree the most powerful factor leading people to support such leaders is a perception that their inherited culture is under threat and to that extent applying the backlash label might seem to be justified. But I think nonetheless there are reasons to resist it. One is that it portrays the responses of ordinary citizens to the societal changes occurring around them as emotional and irrational, a kind of blind lashing out. I think the other is that it assesses these responses against the Enlightenment narrative in which everyone is supposing to be moving in the direction of egalitarian liberalism. In other words, it assumes that the problem arises because people are clinging on fast to their national identities when really they ought just to be letting go as the arrow of history requires. So what are we to conclude about the resurgence of nationalism? So I've been arguing that it's badly misunderstood if it's seen as a retrograde lurch towards nationalism against a background in which national identities are otherwise disappearing. A better approach is to follow Berlin and seeing authoritarian nationalism as an inflamed condition of a national consciousness, which in other circumstances can be tolerant and peaceful. So my suggestion is that a cool form of nationalism is the normal condition of both citizens and leaders in liberal democracies. So what's caused the information? Well, I, th I think a perception on the part of a significant minority of citizens that the national narrative with which they identify is being significantly disrupted. They're being exposed to a period of radical cultural change against their will, and they therefore look to leaders who they believe can stem these unwanted changes 
So most are not opposed to liberalism in general, but they may be willing to accept some deviations from liberal norms for this purpose. So then what should be done if we want to halt this drift towards authoritarian nationalism? Well, I suggest the remedy doesn't involve the wholesale aban abandonment of national identities, even supposing that could be engineered, but a re-engagement with the difficult task of finding versions of national identity that are reasonably accessible to all citizens. And the problem essentially is one of striking the correct balance between unity and diversity. It's obvious that most democracies have become increasingly culturally diverse in recent decades, partly as a result of immigration, but also of changing ideas of personal identity that have eroded traditional gender and lifestyle norms. It's also obvious that people have become more willing to assert these identities and demand they be given public recognition. So a liberal form of nationalism has certainly to accept a lot of cultural pluralism and recognize there are many different ways of being Danish or British and so forth. But there does need to be some degree of cultural convergence, otherwise the very idea of the nation disappears from view. There must be something that holds people together as belonging to this particular nation rather than some other. And that's usually some combination of language cultural icons, landmark historical events, and so forth. And these have to be regarded widely as significant, even though it's also possible for there to be quite radical disagreement about how they should be evaluated. So Cromwell in Britain, Bismarck in Germany, de Gaulle in France, are all in this way acknowledged to be hugely important historical figures, although fierce debate continues about how their achievements should be assessed, dividing supporters from critics. But a problem will arise if we reach the point where it becomes impossible even to reach agreement about who is significant or what is significant and what isn't. So it won't have escaped your attention that a moment ago I chose to use as examples three white males. So suppose a large minority of citizens were to come to favour versions of national history in which such people barely figure if at all, then I think at that point it will seem as though we're living not in one nation but in two or more, which of course is already being offered as a diagnosis of what's been happening in the US in the recent past involving a very radical disagreement over the very idea of what it means to be an American. Now to avoid reaching that point, liberal nationalists will make, I think, two suggestions. The first is that about the importance of adding new items to the inventory of national icons rather than deleting those already included. So, for example, in the current controversy about whether to remove statues and plaques commemorating people who are now seen to have been involved in supporting colonialism or slavery, it's better instead to put up new statues and plaques celebrating those who took part in resisting these ventures. So rather than trying to erase from public view people who many now disapprove of but others still support, we acknowledge their controversial status by adding new faces to the public scene. And the second I think is that since sometimes choices will have to be made, there are so to speak only so many plinths to go around, 
it's important that these should be made following widespread democratic debate. And that means that sometimes the cultural majority, if there is one, is going to prevail. So I think authoritarian nationalism is fueled by a belief that cultural changes are being engineered by a liberal elite out of touch with the majority of ordinary citizens. And so a good way to respond to this is to allow the majority actually to speak on these questions through proper processes of public consultation, through citizen assemblies and so forth. Perhaps the authoritarians will prove right and the majority of the public turn out to be more culturally conservative than their current elected representatives, but perhaps not. Perhaps they'll be happy to see culturally, cultural diversity increasingly acknowledged, provided this doesn't mean banning or censoring existing cultural material. So I think a straw in the wind here is provided by some uh, forthcoming research by Elizabeth Eversflaten and Paul Snyderman, which among other things explores responses to diversity in the form of question about what school textbooks should contain. And they found interestingly that people in the US and Norway responded differently to two apparently quite similar propositions. First, school textbooks should be written to reflect the diversity of whichever country. And second, school textbooks should be rewritten to reflect the diversity of whichever country. So, a large majority, around three quarters in both places, agreed with the first proposition, but this fell to a bare majority agreeing with the second. So what we see here is that first the idea that diversity should be acknowledged in the material that's taught in school has widespread support, but this falls back somewhat when the word rewriting is used, which I conjecture conjures up for many respondents the idea of rewriting history, in other words, excluding past material no longer judged to be acceptable. So I suggest then that a form of nationalism that's both liberal, acknowledging internal pluralism, and democratic, involving citizens directly in debates over the direction to which national culture should be encouraged to evolve, is in fact the best response to authoritarian nationalism. And I've argued against the enlightenment of Ingwerhardt and others that nationalism in liberal democracies is not going to fade away. But suppose just for the moment that it did. Suppose scientists develop a pill whose effect is that when citizens wake tomorrow, they no longer think of themselves as French or German, but merely as people who live in a certain place with a certain shared taste and one case for fine wine and the other case for sausages, well, what exactly would be lost? Well, from a purely personal point of view, the pill takers would no longer think of themselves as participants in a long historical narrative in which various significant events have occurred. The previously French would no longer think of themselves as heirs to Danton and Robespierre, the previously German would no longer think of themselves as uh, descendants of the Holocaust and so forth. But they would still have individual ancestors and family histories, so maybe they wouldn't experience that as such a loss. But I think that what would 
disappear from a political perspective is nationality as a mobilizing device, a means of inviting people to engage in collective action. I think the importance of the nation from this point of view has been brought home to us in the, in the recent uh, coronavirus pandemic. It's not simply that for practical reasons, responses to the pandemic has been organized almost entirely along national, national government lines. More important, I think, is the fact that governments, particularly the ones that have been most successful in dealing with the pandemic, have been able to use national solidarity as a motivating device, persuading people to change their behavior in ways they'd be very reluctant to do unless they were trusting their compatriots to do the same. And I think this is undoubtedly going to also be the case in the years ahead as we face the challenge of climate change, where governments will be asking citizens to change their lifestyles in very unwelcome ways. And I think people won't do it unless they're convinced they're part of a joint enterprise in which others are also playing their part. Now, of course, <clears throat> there's ongoing disagreement among social scientists about precisely what kind of collective identity is needed to provide the necessary motivation. Not everyone agrees that it must be national identity in the historical cultural sense. So I'm going to conclude on a provisional note. I've argued that for people of a liberal persuasion, a resurgence of authoritarian forms of nationalism is certainly unwelcome, but it should not be confused with a rise in levels of nationalism among the population at large, for which there is no evidence. Equally, there's no evidence that nationalism is in the process of fading away in liberal democracies, as the Enlightenment narrative proposes. And it may be well, well be a good thing that this is so. So I'm going to end with a short quote from Robert Dahl, who says, is a non-rational loyalty to the integrity of a certain historical collectivity required if democracy is to exist in the government of a state? Probably. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, for this interesting and inspiring talk. Uh, several of you have already uh, written questions uh that can start the the debate i have five of them on my list so far there's one very practical quick one let's let's do that first um could you please repeat the coordinates of macron's speech which speech were you referring to the uh the speech that he he it was the hundredth uh, anniversary of the armistice that finished World War One. So we're talking 2018. Is the question where where he, where he gave? I have to check where he gave the speech. It was filmed and it was quite a prominent uh, public event. Um, sure it was in Paris or whether it was somewhere on on the Western Front. Is is that the question? That uh, yeah. I guess it was just to, just to know where it where it was to probably to go back in. Uh and read it yeah okay then we go to the more solid uh pieces um i will try to take them uh, in the order that they appeared on my uh 
screen, which means that I start with Hans saying, you take answers to a question about feeling close to your country in a questionnaire to conclude that nationalism seems to be the normal state of affairs. Is not that a conclusion that cannot be drawn from one single questionnaire question? In the Netherlands, people tend to give similar answers to such a question, but our research shows that nationalisms, nationalism sorry, plays no role whatsoever in their daily lives and only provokes conflicts in societal institutions like education and the labor market. Moreover, is not the need for belongingness salient when it is threatened by other people being inspired by their nationalism? So is there not a self-fulfilling prophecy and reciprocity in nationalism? Um, okay, so um, the uh, evidence I was citing is, of course, only a small drop in an ocean of research that is done on various aspects of people's national identifications. And uh, sometimes questions are asked of, of the kind that I was describing, asking whether people feel close to their country, whether it matters to them to belong to the country. Other questions are asked about whether they feel pride in their institutions. There are questions about whether they think their country is better than other countries or a better place to live and so on. Um, so all of this, all of this shows that um, what, what it shows is that a certain view that I think is popular in what I've called the Enlightenment narrative, <laughs> namely that other kinds of identities are displacing national identities. In other words, people now identify on the basis of locality or it might be of gender or religion or lifestyle. Of course, people do identify in those ways, but the point is that they hold these identities alongside overarching national identities. And I think what the evidence shows is that there's, there's no sense in which those more inclusive identities are in decline. Now, the question asked about nationalism, and it may be that, that what the questioner had, had in mind was something uh, stronger than what, what I call the hot form of nationalism, which involves hostility towards foreigners or some very strong version of the view that a national interest should be promoted regardless. Uh, I was trying to provide evidence for what I described in quite simple terms as a cool form of nationalism, which, uh, as I was indicating, isn't incompatible with commitment to liberal values. Need to unmute myself. Next question is from um, from Aziz. Like all the others, starting with thank you for this interesting talk, and then it goes on by saying there is an assumption in your lecture that nationality is not only a normal political condition, but also a prerequisite for enforcing mechanisms of solidarity. But I think this assumption can be challenged from an empirical, historical point of view. Political science and sociology point to the fact of the emergence of welfare state to the class struggle. Esping Anderson and others make it very clear that there was no effect of such thing as common nationalities 
when the welfare state first emerged. But there was very heightened class conflict and the redistribution among classes was the way of mitigating those class conflicts. So the welfare state was premised upon labor and the entitlements were based upon labor. In other words, the development of welfare state is premised upon work and class division, divisions rather than upon nationality status. What would you say to this view of the interplay between nationality and solidarity? Good. That's a good, that's a good question. And um, it's certainly the case that the historical emergence of welfare states is a complex story in which uh, material class analysis has a role to play. Um, the, the, the claim made by people like me about the importance of national solidarity is partly a claim that um, the, in, to the extent to which um, the introduction of the welfare state became consensual, was supported not only by uh, the left, but also by liberals, Christian Democrats, and so on, uh, testifies to a kind of social agreement on the need for some measure of redistribution and support uh, for people who are worse off in society. But also I think, um, sort of get, looking ahead, um, I think continued support for redistributive welfare institutions is going to require this sense of unity between those who are likely to be the beneficiaries and those who are predictably likely to be the net contributors. And I think as, as, as the, the, the market economy, um, as it were, tends to obliterate the historical lines of class struggle, this actually may become more important in, in the future. So now I think, um, I mean, some a few years back, I wrote a piece called uh, Testing a National Identity Argument, in which I tried to disentangle exactly what uh, causal role national identity in particular played in the story. And it turns out to be complicated. And that, that, that paper was, somewhat concessive on this issue. So I no longer perhaps hold the very strong and perhaps possibly naive view that I held in 1995 when I started writing about this, about the um, importance of national identity for particularly for social justice policies. I now recognize that the causality is more complicated and also that the, um, the agent of solidarity, what exactly it is, whether it's institutions, whether it's identities, and if so, what kind of identity is more complex, but I certainly think the nationality is part of the picture. Um, I have two questions about, about categorizations, and if that's okay for you, I'll, I'll regroup them. First is from Judith asking if we are to discard the categorization of ethnic versus civic nationalism, is there an alternative means of categorization. And more or less related to that question from uh, Ritwick, um, in your opinion, in your opinion, is national consciousness the same as national identity? 
or can there be many national identities but only one consciousness if any uh, well um <clears throat> as far as the first question goes um there is clearly still some importance in tracking the way that national identities evolve over time and in particular the extent to which um, they have what you might call a nativist character where the features that are taken to be key to making somebody French, British, whatever, are features that can only be possessed by people who are either born or raised in the country. And clearly for the kind of inclusive nationalism I was talking about at the end of the talk where we're talking about how culturally different immigrants can be integrated into the national community, it's important that the relative significance of these nativist features should, should diminish and other cultural or civic features should um, <clears throat> become more prominent. So I think we're still going to want to look at that. But I think what we have to discard is the idea that you can place whole countries in either uh, you know, ethnic or, or civic boxes. I mean, this whole thing arose, you know, half a century ago when people were essentially claiming that there were kind of two forms of nationalism, the Eastern form, which was ethnic, and the Western form, which was civic. And that was never, that was never accurate. Um, and I think it's increasingly just misleading now. So I wouldn't mind um, if, that, if that contrast was to disappear, uh, so long as we do still focus attention on the actual, what actually goes into the making of national identities. On the second um, question, well, I, I, tend, I tend to think of national identity as the inclusive um, idea. So, but I think um, what you may be getting at is what I was saying perhaps towards the end, which is that I think we've come to accept the idea of sort of partially hyphenated identity, um, which is most obviously the case, for example, in the, in the US where people speak of being Italian American and so forth, but something like this, um, perhaps not in quite that formal way, I think has emerged in other places. The idea that you can have an identity that's made up partly of some other kind of cultural, religious, or maybe society of origin identity that is one way of being part of the larger whole. So I think that's the important, that's the important idea. All right, then, then I have a question from Delia. Um, I wonder what in your critique of the resurgence backlash narrative is different from Billick's own discussion of banal nationalism as an endemic condition of liberal democracies, which you yourself cite. My question is this, could you specify what your argument adds, adds to or where it differs from the banal nationalism thesis? Um, I, well, I'm not sure. I, I'm, um, that's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I thought Billy um, was saying something important, which is why I gave him 
the credit for inventing the idea of a kind of cool nationalism. Um, so, so, so Billig's um, important point was that we just, we don't notice the nationalism that surrounds us in the way that, uh, you know, flags, he talks a lot about flags, but also you might talk about news media and so on, constantly reinforces our sense of belonging to a particular national community without our even noticing it. Um, but the question we, which I think you're asking, which I, I don't think I can answer, is, is what <laughs> Billy would say specifically about the version of cultural backlash that I'm attributing to writers like uh, Inglehart and Norris, because obviously um, I'm not sure that Billig would recognize the what I'm calling the Enlightenment narrative in quite the form uh, that I presented it. So, so what, what I was what I was trying to bring out there was this um, assumption, which I think is quite um, quite pervasive among um, political commentators and political scientists of a certain kind of liberal disposition, which sort of normalizes this idea that we are moving in a certain direction. There's a kind of progressive direction of travel that we're all being carried along in in, in a faster or slower, as faster or slower speed, uh, and that as part of this, you know, even even the the the, the core cool form of nationalism disappears insofar as it takes a political form, and so if it if it's going to persist, it becomes purely cultural. So I think that is perhaps something a bit different from um, Billig, but I, I'm happy to give him uh, ample credit for the, for the idea. Giovanni has asked three questions. I will, I will pick one of them because there are others in, um, in the pipeline. Um, how would you interpret the recent struggle against statues and traditional national symbols? Uh, what, what place does that take in your view on resurgence of or not resurgence of nationalism? Um, well, as I sort of briefly um, mentioned just towards the end of the talk, I see, I see dangers in this movement insofar as it's not democratically uh, authorized and controlled. So, um, so just to take one particular case, we, we had the, um, here in the UK, we had a case where a local uh, dignitary who'd been, uh, it was a kind of local benefactor who'd also, Mankel Colston, who'd been involved in quite a big way in slave trade, you know, his statue was um, was was torn down and thrown into the into Bristol Harbour, and um, the mayor, who was as it happens himself a, a, a black man, um, said that you know he thought there was a debate to be had about what should be done with this statue, but he wanted it to be a democratic debate in which various people could contribute and think and suggest about how. The city should respond to this particular kind of inheritance. And it seems to me that um, that is exactly the way that these 
debate should go through democratic channels in such a way that um, the reasons for wanting in cases where some change is made, which might be, it might be the case of moving a statue, it might be a case for putting up some kind of interpretive uh, plaque or whatever. The reasons for doing this can be explained in public, including to people who initially uh, are resistant. If people feel that, it, that it's simply a minority trying to impose a radical cultural shift, that I think is precisely the soil in which authoritarian nationalism will grow because people will feel that their sort of things are slipping out of their control and it's some only some strong leader that can reassert control. So so that's 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 my that's my view. I think there are um, significant dangers in the the current the way the current process is proceeding. All right, James is asking. I'm curious about the effects that might flow from a re-engagement with national identity. The political left is often very reluctant to engage with the topic of national identity which has clearly left a large opening for the political right to exploit. If we imagine a scenario where the left re-engaged seriously with national identity, how might this reconfigure political cleavages? Do you think we would expect to see a new foundation of productive political activity or would we expect polarization in new ways? Well, I think um, the, I mean, the spirit of that question, uh, very much in line with what I was suggesting at the end of the, the talk. Um, so I certainly think that um, people on the political left do need to re-engage with the idea of national identity and they may do it, um, you know, using different language. Um, the language of patriotism is often seen as more acceptable or more um, discrimin more discriminatory because it precisely because it can be um, contrasted in the way that Macron does. And I think uh, in in the UK, the new Labour leader Starmer is doing something a bit similar using the language of patriotism to as a way of recapturing what I'm calling um, a cool cool a cool form of nationalism and um, it, it needs to do this because it's essential to building the kind of, of coalition that is needed by you know the in, in the absence of a the kind of old form of class division, um, the kind of coalition that the left needs to, to in order to, to return to power can only be uh, brought together by projecting a vision uh, of what the nation can be that is inclusive and so on. So I think it, it, has, it has to be done. Um, and that will mean also engaging with these issues, these cultural issues and issues about about national history and how it's to be reinterpreted and, and, and effectively coming up with new narratives. Um, because I think 
that the power of narrative is uh, is very important. I think this is one of the things that we learn when we look at how people understand national identities, that the idea of a story in which they form a part is very important to people. And so you can't just, you can't reduce nationalism to some kind of um, purely abstract or quantitative notion. It has a sort of narrative character too. Thanks. Then I move to Orgun. Orgun is asking my question is what kinds of theoretical shifts in liberal theories are waiting for us, inspired by national speeches like Macron's. Are you thinking that as your nationalist view of positive sides binding power in one territory has long been subordinated to capital market on everywhere, I meant not lost, but very low degree of importance for social practices within globalization. Um, sorry, Chris, could you just repeat the last bit? I, I am discovering while I'm reading. Yeah. A, I think I think the, the core of the question is what kinds of theoretical shifts in liberal theories are waiting for us, inspired by speeches like uh, like Macron. Right. Um, okay. Um, well, the obviously the. Um, the implication for liberals of what I've been saying is that liberals need, I think, to become more aware of the cultural um, underpinning and background to liberal institutions. In other words, um, I think liberalism has a tendency to become highly abstract and moralized, in other words, to reduce to certain principles that, uh, so to speak, float free from any kind of historical cultural background, and therefore to regard any derogation from these principles as somehow indefensible. So, I mean, I suppose, you know, one area in which this comes out, which I've obviously been working in recent years is in the debates over immigration, when I think um, liberals by instinct are in favor of opening up borders uh, as widely as possible. And I think the worry then is that they perhaps neglect and overlook the kind of issues this might pose for the reproduction of liberal societies over time, insofar as this involves maintaining sufficient social integration to support actually the liberal institutions that they value. So, um, you know, for example, a kind of liberalism that places huge weight on, for example, human rights, which is in itself admirable, has also, I think, to ask the question, how, do, how can we support societies in which human rights are supported and recognised? What kind of solidarity do we need to do that? And so I think it does, it does require a kind of reorientation by liberals away from this Enlightenment idea that uh, national identities are just to be consigned to the past and liberal institutions can stand completely free of them. 
so it would it would involve i think a a reorientation of uh, of liberal thinking okay i have another big one um michael is asking isn't your account of the enlightenment narrative unhistorical as the american and french revolutions were both nationalist and based on certain enlightenment values and the arch enlightenment philosopher immanuel kant praised the principles of the french revolution rights of man national self-determination and opposed the idea of world government and advocated a world federation of self-governing republics um yes now i'm not sure i quite got the question i mean when i when i described an enlightenment narrative um I, w- I was not particularly referring to the historic enlightenment i was referring to a certain vision of the trajectory of liberal democracies in the period following um world war ii effectively uh though sometimes this is also in even in an even grander version presented as the trajectory that all societies are eventually destined to follow whereby once material scarcity is overcome once once all societies cross the point at which the basic struggle for existing material existence is resolved and everybody has a kind of minimally adequate standard of living then there is a kind of progressive transformation of values which takes the form of um, increasing commitment to what Inglehart for example would call post-materialist values values to do with uh, identity uh, goods other than material goods personal freedoms and so on and so forth so that was what I meant by an enlightenment narrative a certain kind of historical view but actually not reaching back as far as the historical enlightenment, but as conditional upon this sort of crossing of the material threshold, uh, which is what to have occurred in the in the liberal democracies. So um, yes, I mean, we could have an interesting discussion about um, uh, how somebody like um, Kant fits into this sort of picture, um, because uh, you know Kant himself is often held up as a kind of um, paradigm of a certain sort of enlightenment liberalism. But actually, in my own view of Kant, um, he was much more conscious of national differences and national values than sometimes people realize and uh, actually rather assumed the distinctive uh, he, you know, he says somewhere that it's, it, it's providence that's divided the world into different nations by giving us different languages. So I think, uh, though he's slightly un- unlikely as a recruit, uh, I would have a, at least have a decent shot as recruiting Kant for a kind of liberal nationalism. Thanks. And then I've, I've reached the last one. Apologies if I've missed uh, questions. The last one. To close is, is let's say is a more more empirical one if you want um would you please or could you please give us more details or examples maybe on how rewriting school books can help us to avoid a shift to authoritarian nationalism knowing that by rewriting the school books 
we are opposing the national narrative, which some states will not approve. Okay, so maybe okay, that question may, may be a misunderstanding. What I was um, drawing attention to when I uh, uh, cited this uh, research, I think is should uh, come out fairly soon in, in, in an interesting book um, on um, particularly Muslim minorities in liberal democracies by uh, Elizabeth Evers Flatten and Paul Snyderman. Um, they were obviously looking at the extent to which liberal publics were tolerant of difference and you know what kinds of uh, challenge to established ways of living they were willing to accept and, and to, to adjust and where they would sort of draw the line at things which were not acceptable. And so as part of that research, they were looking at the, the various proposals that are often now made that school books should be changed to reflect a more diverse, culturally diverse uh, society. And the particular thing I was drawing out of that was that they noticed a significant difference when the question was posed in terms of writing books to reflect diversity and rewriting. So you might think, well, it's one syllable, you know, why does it make 25% difference in the way people respond? That's interesting. And, but my, my interpretation, this is my interpretation, I'm not going to um, saddle Elizabeth and Paul with this, is that um, people understand that in a diverse society, you know, the public culture, including in particular what's taught in schools, should reflect that diversity. So it should incorporate references to different minorities, to religions and so forth, racial differences. But um, they're worried about the idea that in order to do that, you have to excise things that they might already find valuable. In other words, they, they want things added, but they don't want things taken away. And I think that the idea of rewriting, well, it conjures up a slightly Orwellian idea that you take the historical story and you, so to speak, censor it and you cut out things that seem thought to be no longer acceptable. Whereas what people are much happier with is the idea of adding in new ingredients. So, um, and I, so I take that as sort of, um, symptomatic or emblematic of what would be a wider process of the remaking of national identities, which would involve taking their current cultural content and adding to it and introducing new themes, new ideas, new events. You know, we have things, for example, in the UK, one of our most significant events is the Notting Hill Carnival, which is a celebration of Caribbean culture, and it's become a big national event. Um, it takes its place alongside the more traditional, uh, you know, uh, holidays and so forth. So I think this is this is the um, the general direction in which I was recommending that national identities should be reconstituted to to, to better provide solidarity for contemporary liberal democracies. Okay, that's um, 
That's quite quite clear. Well, that that brings us well and right on time. Also brings us to the end of this first house uh, lecture. Um, I'd like to thank you uh, from the bottom of my of my heart, uh, David, for the lecture and for taking the time to answer all these uh, questions. I think you have clearly illustrated why you have deserved the ECPR's Lifetime Achievement um, Award. So thanks. Uh, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot to you all in the um, in the audience for listening, for asking uh, questions, for being with us uh, today. Um, I hope to see you all for the second version, for the second uh, house lecture, um, sometime on the other side of uh, of New Year. So for now, bye bye. Thanks.